Sarah Steelman has participated in some of Missouri's highest profile statewide contests. While she's not running for anything this year, she has a lot to say about Missouri's political climate. The Republican joins us next on another edition of Politically Speaking. Nine, eight, eight seven, six, six five, five four, three, two, one. Uh, I think that is fair As to I say. say hands to kiss and babies to shake. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I think my record speaks for itself. That's a really good question. Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Rosenbaum, a reporter with St. Louis Public Radio. Joining me in studio in St. Louis today is... Colleague Joe Manis. And coming all the way from beautiful Rolla, Missouri, in scenic Phelps County, we have as our very special guest today... Sarah Steelman. A former state treasurer, (laughs) former state senator, and... um, A former candidate for governor. A former candidate for governor and and U.S. Senate. Senate. And that's the reason we're having her on today. Um, We've been going through this crazy election cycle where every statewide (laughs) office is up for grabs except the U.S. Senate. And we thought it would be good to bring in somebody who's been through the fire before to provide their perspective on what it's like to run for statewide office, as well as their reflections on on past and current politics. Actually, I got to correct you, though, because there is a U.S. Senate seat that's up. It's just not in the primary. It is. And the, and the, and Blunt is is running for reelection. All the statewide offices we're talking. Oh, governor, you're talking about open. OK, open. OK. Yes. I, I'm glad you did that I because I was listeners <laughs> to be clear. Well, we're a little. Con- I was going to remind everybody about that. We, it, it, we are confusing on the Politically Speaking podcast. Because we get in the weeds we and sometimes weeds. we have to yes. whack them off. So we're hoping to have a uh, former state auditor, Susan Monty, on the show to provide the Democratic perspective in either later this month or in August. But um, before we go any further, for people that don't know who you are, just tell us a little bit about yourself, how you got interested in politics. And I guess Joe is going to ask you where you went to high school. So I'm just going to short circuit her right yeah, there. Go ahead. <laughs> All right. Well, right now I'm, I'm actually an um, assistant teaching professor at MST teaching economics, macroeconomics. So working backwards from there, I, you know, I, uh, of course, ran, as you said, in the different statewide races with state treasurer uh, for four years. And then when Matt Blunt decided not to run for governor, suddenly that was a big shock to everybody. Yes, I remember that. I decided well. to get in that race. Not to bring back too many bad memories, but didn't he announce he wasn't running again on the same day you announced you were running for re-election. This is true. You had a, you have a very good memory. It's hard to forget that day because it was, I still think, one of the most shocking moments for me in Missouri politics. My, my window is a little bit narrower than Joe's, obviously, but I was totally taken by surprise. What was your reaction when that happened? I was completely taken by surprise. I remember we were, we had made the first announcement at my parents' house in Jefferson City around uh, the kitchen table that I actually got. You asked me at where I got my interest in politics. Well, that's where it comes from, you know, talking politics with my mom and my dad, my brothers, and my friends. And um, so then we were driving to Rolla to do the next one, and it was somewhere in between there that somebody called me and said he's He's not going to run again, and I was just. What's the I in actually the winter? made. I keep thinking it was. It was January. in Jan- it was, it was. It was in okay, January. January twenty six. That's, yeah. that's why I thought. I thought uh, hopefully my age hasn't caught up with yeah. me yet. But good. Yeah, and then January. the transmission in my car went out. Oh my <laughs> I completely stopped. <laughs> Couldn't get to Rolla. 
It was a weird day. I, I have to ask this, and I, we we may eventually be able to ask this if former Governor Blunt, do you think he did that on purpose? Because I know that you and him didn't have the best relationship. I, 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 I have always kind of felt like he did, or somebody, somebody in his on his campaign staff planned it that way. I, I have no. I have no uh, documentation of that at all. Yeah. It's just my gut feeling. Yeah, well, because I had heard from somebody at the time, and I won't say who it is because they're still pretty prominent. They had told me that uh, the gut, then Governor Blunt had called them that morning and told them what he was doing, and they're like, what? <laughs> you know, and, that, and supposedly, I mean, these are people that were fairly connected and high up, and uh, they were stunned. So who knows? But yeah, he was just supposedly he he just kind of felt I'm done with that. I want to move on. Sometimes it happens with people. It does. And it, it really does. Yeah. And, and it, yeah. And sometimes I've seen some politicians where they've stayed too long, mm-hmm. where they were past that, and they were just kind of you know. And then other times, some people leave too early. And as we have a case in Indiana, my home state. Yes. Where Evan Bay is now trying to come I back. Saw that. I saw that. I saw your shocking tweets. That yeah, well, great. actually, I talked to him back in '95 at a Democrat Days in Hannibal back wow. in the day. I remember uh-huh. sitting around the pool talking to him. Yeah. So you, but you first ran for office in 1998 for a state senate seat that was held by a Democrat in a 20-year incumbent. A 20-year incumbent. Michael Senator Michael Ibar. Yeah. What, and uh, that was actually the beginning of the. Takeover of the Republicans of yes. uh, uh, rural Missouri. Of rural Missouri, yeah. It, I think I let's see. I won, and then we had in two thousand in two thousand two more. For a while, we were you know I, I served in the minority and the majority right. in the in the state senate, which was great. I it was a good learning experience <laughs> for me, and I appreciate those two years in the minority. And then for a while, we were even. Remember, we had co- yes. co-chairman, yes. one Republican, one Democrat, and then we had a special. Yeah, that yeah. was— And that then was, took over. That yeah, was famous the famous one in Hannibal. Yeah, that was the one with uh, John Cawthorn yes. taking over the 18th senatorial district. It's, it's interesting you mentioned that because I started reporting professionally about 10 years ago during the 2006 election cycle, and that seat, the 18th district seat— and your old seat, the 16th district seat, were won that cycle by Democrats. Frank Barnett's won for your old seat. Wes Schumeyer won for uh, Cawthorn's seat. Now, those seats in 2014 weren't even contested by Democrats. Right. It's It's gone so far in the other direction that... Democrats are just kind of demoralized. Why, why do you think it? Why do you think it's happened during that relatively short period of time? Well, I think there are a couple things. Um, one is redistricting, <laughs> which I think is at the root of a lot of problems in our country. The way we do re- redistricting. But talking about being in the weeds, that's in the weeds. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, but that's okay. But, that's but, our but, listeners. But are. secondly, I think it's. Um, also, you have the extremes of both parties, and, and the extremes of the Democrats are, are ridiculous now. So, you, so my 16th senatorial district used to be Democratic, and yeah. the 8th district in general was, I mean, we, it was fairly Democratic. The it 18th was the district, old, yeah. The 8th district. Oh, the well, 8th she's district. talking about 8th congressional district. Oh, yes, yes, it was It was old-time Conservative yeah. Democrats, right? Well, I mean, That's I would put my, too. you know, Michael Ibar, Danny Staples, those those guys into that conservative Democratic category. 
Those people don't exist anymore. Oh, yeah. I mean, back when I covered in the Washington Bureau, the Post-Dispatch, back in the early 80s, uh, this is back when there was 10 congressional seats for a period. And, like, yeah, the 8th and the 10th, which were basically South, East, and Central South rural Missouri. And, of course, you had the 9th, as I mentioned, right. Volkmer, which is yes. the Northeast. <laughs> you know, these were all... Well, one of them was held by uh, Wendell Bailey captured one, but I mean, and then Bill Emerson captured one, and I was around um, earlier when Bill Emerson had captured that seat from uh, Burleson, mm-hmm. who had been a Democrat, right? And and so you could see where it, basically it was closing in, where it kind of the movement started sort of in southeast Missouri, and then it just kind of gradually spread to northeast. I mean, Mel Carnahan was from Rolla, you know, yeah. your home. Your home, and right. he's and he was a very prominent Democrat, and was in many cases, I would say, the brain trust of the Democratic Party for a while before his death. And it, it, you've you've just seen the dynamics yeah, change. You so could much. actually see it with him. I mean, he really moved to the left, further to the left yes, than he when, did. when he started. And yeah. and so now you've got this very divisive. Uh, they have no place to go, those conservative Democrats. So they're in the Republican Party. That was going to be my question, because we're now at a point where Republicans hold unprecedented majorities in the House and Senate. Mm -hmm. I'm sure when you came into the legislature, I guess in early 1999, you probably wouldn't have imagined a scenario where there were 117 Republicans in the House and 26 or 25 Republicans in in the Senate. Do you think that Republicans need to be careful and make sure, you know, they solidify those gains? Or is it a possibility that some of those rural parts of the state that were Democratic that went Republican could revert to form if they're not careful, basically? Okay, well, I'm, I'm more old school. Okay, so I think actually govern, government works better in the state when we're closer in, in the in majority the and minorities when there's when people are forced to compromise on on issues. Now, I mean, you know, I'm a conservative and I'll stand by my core principles till the day I die. And I've filibustered a lot of things in in my time that I believed in. But but our our system of government is designed to to sit down and reach compromises and and solve problems. And I think when we have such extreme majorities on either side cuz David, my husband, served when there were very few Republicans. Right. Yeah, in fact, was, we need to mention this. I yeah. mean, segue here. Your husband is David Stillman, who's a prominent lawyer in the Rolla area, but he also had run for attorney general back in 92, and that's how I met him. Yeah. And um, his family, the Stillman family, mm-hmm. has a long history uh, in politics, separate from you. But, I mean, in all fairness, we need to mention that, although your career has been really very separate other than he has provided some support, I'm sure, from time to time. I remember standing in the back of the room different times when he's critiqued your speeches to me. <laughs> <laughs> that should be entertaining. And he's still... It certainly was to me. Yeah. And he's still active in politics now, or at least in policy now. He is a member of the U, uh, UM System Board of Curators. Interestingly, and we were discussing this off mic, even though uh, your husband and Jay Nixon were not the best of friends in the early 90s, he, the, election. the governor has tapped him to be part of the Moser's board and the board of curators, which are which are not exactly minor offices, so to right, speak. Right. And I respect, you know, I respect Governor Nixon for doing that. 
uh, of picking good people from the opposing party who are interested in good government and, and, and making sure that we have that. And I've actually discussed that with, with um, Governor Nixon. I think it was after one of my losses. <laughs> but, um, you know, that's got to be our first interest. And I, I hate it when we deviate from that. I mean, which shows there may be hope for Kurt Schaefer and Josh Hawley in 10 years. <laughs> uh, <laughs> oh, you never know. That. Let me tell you. Look, when I covered the Steelman Jay Nixon race in 92, I figured those guys would never, ever speak much less even walk down the same street together. Let me tell you, Let it alone got being really appointed nasty. to Moser's board or the U.S. System Board of Trade. Correct. And now yeah. they're, you know, chatting around. And yeah. Well, but this is what I wanted to segue into. You've run for three statewide offices. You've run for treasurer in 2004, which you were successful for, during what I would classify as a very good year for Republicans. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yep. You've run for governor in a, a pretty intense gubernatorial primary where you came a little bit short for that. And then you ran for the U.S. Senate four years ago in a three-way race that was also pretty close, but you fell short in that one as well. So just generally, as somebody who has run for statewide office before, give the listeners kind of a perspective on what it's like, um, sort of the rigors that it entails. What lessons you learned. And what lessons that you've learned over the years. Oh, gosh. I don't think we have time for all that, but I'll try to condense it. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very challenging to run a statewide race. And I would say that the governor's race was in particularly hard because I had everybody against me, the entire establishment and everybody that goes along with that word, which now nobody really knows the definition of. Back then, it really was the party. I mean, the party apparatus was working against me. Yeah, they wanted Kenny Holshoff, who was the congressman. Yes. Yeah, the 9th District, which at that point, I mean, anyway, they wanted Holshoff. When you took in Columbia and some other parts and— and uh, you were not supposed to be doing this. Right. I wasn't supposed to do it. And, and you know, Kip Bond was against me, right. which really motivated a lot of money against me. And it was hard. So it was challenging to raise money under those circumstances. And, you know, it, 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 you just have to take your, your um, ideas straight to the people, which is what we did. And we really came close. I don't remember what the percentage was, but I think it was like 48-44, which suggested that the fact that, A, the fact that you were a statewide entity already, and B, the fact that you were vigorously contending for this, it it showed that those had advantages as, as well, because you didn't, even though the establishment, as you said, was probably for Congressman Holsoff at the time. They were. They, and they were. I was I was there along with Joe. You, you didn't actually do that badly considering the circumstances. So what what lessons does that show that maybe all the establishment uh, support doesn't really mean a whole lot in the end, considering Congressman Holsoff ended up losing pretty badly? To, well, to they ha- and they had chased Kinder out. Right. In that winter before. I'll never right. forget that very clearly at Lincoln Day. After he crossed the Rubicon. After he yes. crossed the Rubicon. <laughs> one, of, one of Peter's delightful little <laughs> quotes. But, um, I, you know, it, it, for, just from a candidate's perspective, it, it showed me that it's possible to be, you know, to, to eventually beat the establishment. Um, mm. I think if you look at now over these past eight years, what's happened is it's, that was like the beginning of beating up on the way it is, the status mm-hmm. quo. And now we're to a point in an election with Trump and even uh, in the, the governor's race here in Missouri with 
the outsider, Eric Reitens, who you know I'm supporting, and, and others in the race, Bruner, that you people are actually looking to shake up the status quo and they're ready for it. It takes a while to get, I saw it then, but it takes a while for the people to catch up with consistently fighting it to, to, to get through. And I think we can do that this year. Now, the fact that 2008, well, 2004, 2008, 2012 are presidential election years. And of course, 2008, 2012, when you lost the primaries, the presidents or the wannabes weren't on the ballot yet, but still there's the atmosphere. I'm just wondering how, whereas 2004, Bush was running for re-election, it was, you know, all about, you know, security and Republicans, strong air. Um, whereas 2008, you could see kind of the wave even months mm-hmm. ahead of time. I'm just curious, what impact do you think that had on your race, even though Obama wasn't on the ballot in, in, in August, but still there's the atmosphere, I'm just wondering. You know, Joe, in, in, in all honesty, I, I don't think it has much in a, in a primary. Okay. I, I, the Republican primary is a strange animal in this state. There are so few people who, who really get out and vote in it. In fact, you never know you know, who's actually going to remember to go vote in August. It's a strange time. It's different from other states. It's so close to the general election, too. But, it's you know, everybody's going back to school or they're, it's summertime. Um, it's really those diehards that either, you know, are committed to against a candidate or for a candidate who get out and vote. I think we saw that in the U.S. Senate race. You know, Todd, Todd Aiken had a lot of committed voters, mm-hmm. um, and got, he got them out to vote. So... It's a, it's a different kind of animal. Now, in the general, that's, that's totally about I the mean, presidential race. The other thing that's changed, because in 2004, there were campaign finance limits for statewide candidates. In 2008, yes. I think that was right at the edge of right. when they got yeah. taken off. I mean, I think statewide campaigns have always been pretty expensive, and you can find ways around campaign finance limits with legislative district committees or PACs or whatnot. But I mean, there has to be a different dynamic now where candidates are getting million-dollar donations from people and able to, like, fund their primary can- candidacies pretty quickly. I mean, what, what's kind of your perspective on that shift, especially when you, you consider you've run under basically both, both systems before? Yeah, I, I, think the, I think the money in politics is the biggest problem the state and country faces because it's being— Basically, we have elections that are being bought and paid for. And, and the political class, and the, that, by that I mean the professionals, who are make money off of campaigns are the ones who are benefiting from this. And it, so it's no longer about ideas like it used to be. And I sound like an old timer. But even when my, my dad and, and Dorman, David's dad, were in politics, they were in it for the ideas. They ne- would never in a million years think of making any money off of, off of it. They wanted to elect somebody who represented their ideas in government. Now we're totally away from that. You know, I will say in the governor's race, this is, this is what we see playing out, and then it gets really nasty using that money. We see, um, you know, these attacks, which is about that time of the year when this happens, but these uh, gratuitous attacks by Bruner against Greitens uh, are completely pulling down the level of, of discussion in our political process today. We're, so he's not talking about ideas, whereas Eric Greitens is trying to talk about ideas. And, and I think we need to get back to that. But the only way to get back to that is to try to get some of the money out of politics. 
Now, how would you do it? Yeah, because it, even even Greitens has gotten some big donations that he's obviously been criticized for. He may need to do that because he doesn't. He's not in an elective office right now, but and he's Joseph, not self-funding like Bruner. Yeah. Right. So okay. I mean, even he is kind of falling into that situation where he's taking huge donations too. Because so, he has to. Because he has to. But he has a variety of donations all over this country of different levels. We see some candidates like. You know, Catherine Hannaway and and Peter Kinder getting funded by sole source <laughs> funders, yeah. um, and not that I have anything against those contributors; they're exercising their. Yeah. And I think Rex Singfeld supported you in the past, but yeah, continue. But but you know, you have to ask yourself, what are they what are they accomplishing? And I don't. If you look at the big picture, we we. We no longer have this discussion of ideas. Look at what these ads are that we're watching. Look at what happened yesterday with that video that was posted uh, yeah. against Eric Greitens that was to a total fabrication, totally fabricated, uh, and, and put on Facebook by Bruner's people just to discredit him. I mean, what, at, to what length will people go now to destroy another person's uh, career and reputation instead of discussing issues. Right. I, we don't want to get too much in the weeds on this, to be fair to the other candidates, because there's been stuff slung around on all sides. And off the air, you and I can talk about some of this. But, but yeah, it still adds to the climate, you know, and does. does. Do you think it discourages, I mean, looking at it just from a broader sense, do you think it discourages voters? Do you think it discourages people from thinking about running if they're going to run into this unless they're... I, worth, I, worth a gazillion bucks? I absolutely think that voters are disgusted with the amount of money in politics and what it is spent on. <clears throat> the negative ads and the these so-called professional consultants who all they're interested in is basically making money for themselves, is profiting off of it. And, and so um, I think that's all part of the status quo that needs to go. <laughs> And that you, you see the people now riling up against um, the establishment who has created this professional class of politicians. Yeah, well, I yeah, ask, with Trump, you yeah, see it. I mean, yeah. he found, you know. Yeah, I was going to ask a broader question because you see a, a crop of candidates running this cycle who are well-funded for by whichever source, but they've never run for political office and that before. Includes Greitens, yeah. It includes Greitens. Bruner has run before against you, obviously, but he's never been in elected office. Bev Randalls has never been in elected office. Josh Hawley has never been in elected office. On the Democratic side, Pat Contreras, who's running for treasurer and who may very well be the nominee, has never run for office before. Um, and, 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 and plus the Democratic candidates for Secretary yes. of State. Two, so, yeah. two of them haven't. So you right. have a whole crop of candidates from both sides who have no electoral experience running for statewide office. When you ran for statewide office in 2004, you had been a state senator. You had that legislative experience. So this is just more broadly getting out of the morass of the, the governor's race. If a lot of these people win statewide offices and they've never held elected office before, what should Missourians expect? Should they expect maybe more out-of-the-box thinking because they're not part of that Jefferson City culture and class, or could they run into some institutional barriers that may make it harder for them to do their jobs? Well, again, I think it depends on the candidate. You know, if they have the right experience that can translate over into whatever job they're seeking, I will say like Eric Greitens can translate easy, easily over into, into a governor's 
becoming governor with his skills in, in leadership and team building and making executive and quick decisions, that translates. It may not translate for every candidate. I mean, I, I honestly think it's, it's based upon the, the skills and background of the candidate. The, so, you know, outsiders, I think, do bring a fresh look to old problems. So what's your thoughts about Trump just in general? I mean, we're, we're uh, recording this before the Republican uh, convention, but not only a few days before. Just interested in your take on it. Do you plan to go to Cleveland? Just kind of, a, you know, what, what are your thoughts as far as how this contributes to the climate or not, since Trump is an outsider who has never won, um, won elective office before? Well, um, no, I'm not planning on going to, to Cleveland, and, and I have a love-hate relationship with, with Trump. <laughs> so Explain. I'm, one I'm day, curious. One day I like, I like his style and his, you know, take no prisoner, I'm going to shake things up kind of attitude. But then he says something ridiculously stupid, and it, then I don't like him. And, and so it—, it, it Overall, I completely understand where he, why he is where he is, because the people in this country are fed up with the system as we know it today. So to that extent, it does contribute in the primary. I think you do see that attitude translating over into primaries, yeah, which is why we have so many you know, outside outsiders running. Joe and I have kind of gone, we, we actually, I think, of our, are on the same mind of this, but we've been talking about this for a while, about Trump's impact on the general election, because... As of now, I haven't seen any polling that, and when I say polling, I mean serious recent polling that suggests to me that Hillary Clinton is is leading in Missouri or has a chance to win Missouri. But I think, as you mentioned, Trump has been so prone to these controversial statements, whether it be his statements against John McCain a few months ago, whether it be his statements against certain ethnic groups are against the judiciary. It kind of raises alarm bells about his temperament, which may make it more possible for Clinton to do well in Missouri. So in the general election, if Trump only wins the state by a couple of percentage points- Which could, is what I've been saying. Could that could that actually be bad for Republicans, given that we saw a scenario in your most recent election cycle where Mitt Romney won by 10 percentage points, there were other things, obviously, uh, affecting in, in, the, the down ballot. The U.S. Senate race, well, but, but arguably, yeah, but, but arguably the Aiken-McCaskill race had more impact on the down ballots yeah. than Romney did. Yeah. So I'm curious, as you look at this one, because I've had some top Democrats tell me that if Trump carry, even if he carries the state, but if he does so by less than five percentage points, they think actually that sets up, that, that can set really help them on the down ballot side. Now, as a Republican, I'm just interested in your take on this, and especially since you've run statewide before so many times, you know, even if they were in primaries, you still have a sense of how this can play yeah, out. I, I, I think there, that makes sense. I think that the lower the margin, I think Trump will win Missouri. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think the, the when you cut into the margin that he'll he will have, then you it becomes much more competitive in the in some of the down ticket races, probably the governor's race mostly. Governor's race, maybe attorney general's race, maybe the U.S. Senate race. But I think once you get below that, 
It, I don't know. It really depends because I could you could make an argument the fact that Bush did well in 04 was one of the reasons you might have won. Though it could have also been the fact that you had better organization, name recognition, money than the Democratic candidate you were running for. So I guess my point of this rambling expose is there's a lot of different variables that end up with the results, essentially. There really are. But I think if, if he has a wide margin in Missouri, then I think you'll see a, a Republican sweep of, office, of I mean, offices. I think it's certainly possible. Yeah, yeah, because I think sometimes people, and I'm going to just mention this briefly, People are assuming that Chris Coster it will be the Democratic nominee, and that at least he might he'll be in a strong position in November because of the money. Doesn't mean he's going to win, but my point is I think some people have been looking at this, stepping back a bit. He doesn't have that much name recognition. He has a lot of name recognition within the political class, mm-hmm. even though he has won election twice. My point being is that sometimes can I'm interested in your take on this. Sometimes candidates and politicians in Jefferson City. Because they're well-known in Jefferson City, they think they're well-known, period. Yes. And I've seen time and time again where they've crashed and burned on the election day because the rest of the state is like, who? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I'm interested I'll in your take on this. In the first in David's uh, attorney general race against Bill Webster, who he did, had a lot of press. You know, he did press conferences all the time when he was attorney general. I think he got his first poll back, and he was his name ID was at like eighteen percent, which, you know, is is very low. Right. So, and that was shocking to me because I figured, oh, everybody knows who he is, and I think you're right. I think people fall into that trap so easily. Nobody knows. I mean, that's why very few Missouri House speakers have won statewide election. Exactly. They think they've got. I've seen so many on both parties. They think they've got it going or, into the you know, fall. More recently, in two thousand eight, Michael Gibbons, who was the top senator, lost to Chris Coster, who was even when he was a Republican, was not really high up in leadership. I think he was in leadership, but not a very prominent yeah, I mean, position, essentially. Yeah, but Coster may have won in two thousand eight because of the Obama effect. But, though, but too. yeah, but, continue. But go ahead. Well, this is why you you know in any statewide race you have to be on TV or you're non-existent. Yeah. So that's why it comes down to such a, you know, a money race, too, because it costs a lot of money to stay to stay up on TV. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, negative negative ads have an effect on people. That's yeah. why uh, people can complain all the time about how they hate them, but they certainly respond to them. Yeah. Isn't that the reason they're expensive is because media outlets are charging a lot of money for them to to be aired essentially i mean i don't i don't this is kind of a wacky opinion here because we are in the media here but i think that when often media people complain about money in politics they don't talk about the fact that it's expensive (laughs) because tv stations and radio stations and radio or or newspaper entities are charging a lot of money for these ads to be on i don't envision a situation where they say everybody gets to be on the air for free but I think that there is kind of dual responsibility here. I mean, what's your thought on that? Yeah, Joe? now, just this little thing here. We're public radio, we so are we don't public have radio. ads. We are <laughs> so a little biased. So we don't get all this. But, and that's fine. That's fine. That's Frankly, that's why I work for public radio. But, but, I mean, that hasn't really been brought up a lot when you talk about money and politics. Although there's not as much. Um, I remember this is about 20 years ago. Uh, I really focused on how much. I think it was a 92 race where I spent 
a lot of time going to the stations and looking at the contracts and stuff. And I've been checking lately, and while the rates have gone up some, really when you take inflation to account, it's not as much. My, my last question for you, because I know that you got to run soon. Will you ever run for anything again? <laughs> well, you, I, you know, I always leave the door open. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm happy uh, doing what I'm doing right now, and, and I like it. Uh, actually, I had not intended to get involved in a primary this year, but I I read Eric Greitens' book Resilience, and then I I thought I heard that he was interested in running for governor. I thought this guy would be fabulous as governor. His experience is uh, beyond reproach and perfect uh, for this position, and and decided that he was he was the guy that I was going to support. So I wanted to get on board and help him, and I am helping him. Um, this year, and I, I, I will say, I'm, I, I gotta say, I'm amazed by the attacks that are coming against against him from Bruner. Now, now, just switching a little bit before, you know, you have been, you were in Jeff City off and on for quite a while. So, you know, Jeff City's come under fire the last couple of years for the atmosphere there, especially the way women are treated, either who work there or hold public mm-hmm. office. I'm interested in your take on that because I know that you came under a lot of, you know scrutiny or whatever, you know, because you're a woman office holder, attractive, and there was just a lot of stuff, you know, that people were always throwing at you. And I'm just interested in your take on looking back, but also the current situation where you've had several major office holders who have had to leave because of you know, inappropriate behavior. Yeah, well, that's that's very unfortunate that they did what they did. Um, you know... <laughs> It's, I guess, did I get sexually harassed when I was, probably yes, <laughs> but it wasn't in a way that I took offense at. You know, I, I think it's always kind of in the eye of the beholder to a certain extent. Um, I, I, I can't really understand all this. The, the, the preoccupation with it, um, in Jeff City, I do think um, is detrimental to women who really have true sexual harassment against them. So I don't like to trivialize it at all. You know, part of it is a generational thing. Like I said, I served with a bunch of uh, state senators who were much older than me, different, my, my dad's generation. They look at women a little differently, so some people might interpret that as sexual harassment. I didn't. I just appreciated, you know, where they were coming from. What I don't like to do is trivialize the real harassment out there that occurs, because it does occur. And, and so I guess that's, that's the extent of my comment on that. Well, we're going to leave it there. We appreciate you coming by. And um, for all of our stories, stlpublicradio.org. You can follow me on Twitter at Jay Rosenbaum. You can follow Joe on Twitter at Jay Manis. That's J M A N N I E S. I believe you're active on Twitter again. How would we follow you on Twitter or any uh, other way? Sarah Sarah underscore Steelman. Yes. I believe it is. It, it, that is correct. I checked before the show happened. We'll be back next time. Until then, so long.